Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, we continually draw near to you because you continually draw near to us. You enable us to come to you because you have revealed yourself in your Son and have made him known to us. Ever draw our eyes to his cross, to his death, to his resurrection, that we would know the fullness of new life that comes only through him. Help us, O Lord, to take your word into our own hearts and to know that your spirit is at work through this very word. Apply it that we would be ever changed more and more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things we do ask through that very same Lord Jesus. Amen. On February 18, 1546, Martin Luther died. He was in his hometown dealing with some family issues, some arguments and some fighting about inheritance between some brothers of his. And after dealing with that and reconciling, he became ill. He was not in good health in general, but this wasn't expected, but he became ill suddenly. And he died on February 18th near the church where he had been baptized in his very home there, the family home, if I recall correctly. There is where he died. And right after he died, there's a couple of different stories that are told about this death. But in his pocket, there was found a little note. It just had these simple words. We are beggars. This is true. Some people say that those were literally the last words out of his mouth. I'm not sure. Either way, works. The note could have been in his pocket, and he could have still said those words out loud to people. It doesn't matter. The note was there, and whether he actually literally said the words or they were on his mind, or he simply made sure that the people around him knew about that note, he wrote the truth. We are beggars. This is true. We have nothing to bring to God himself. We are beggars. This particular Sunday, when the ACNA crafted its prayer book, they've set aside one Sunday in Epiphany to be World Mission Sunday. If you don't do it earlier in Epiphany than the second to last Sunday of Epiphany, the Sunday before Transfiguration Sunday, before the Sunday of the Transfiguration, you're asked to do it, to have World Mission Sunday. And it's appropriate for this kind of Sunday to occur in the midst of Epiphany. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Oliver, he always loved the idea of having a big old mission convention on Epiphany. Because what is Epiphany? Epiphany is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the whole world. The Magi come to witness Christ to see him, to worship him, and there in that moment is a microcosm of God revealing himself to all of creation, to the world, God in human flesh. And so Epiphany is the perfect season because Epiphany is about Jesus being revealed to us. Him being revealed in such a way that we realize that we are beggars, that we see his glory that's been hidden underneath this humanity that he bears now and forever. This humanity that he carries forever, even into the depths of heaven, to sit 
with the Father. He bears His humanity. He bears our humanity. And so Jesus has been revealed to us. And as we consider world mission, consider the outflowing of the gospel throughout the world, I thought it would be good to look at these passages that we've been assigned, that have been given to us, and to reflect on them directly to to get to the foundation of the gospel. Because what's the point of having missionaries if we don't know what the gospel is? What's the point of us going out to tell the world about Jesus if we don't understand the gospel, if we don't lay hold of the gospel, if we can't express the gospel ourselves? And so we consider the words of John, the words of Isaiah, the words of Paul this day. We're going to look at these all through what we're given here in the gospel today. This passage, of course, is very familiar to all of us, I'm sure. We've heard it many times here at Grace. We hear it multiple times a year in some years. This year is one of those years because we'll hear this passage again, probably at Pentecost. I can't remember what our Pentecost passage is, but definitely on the second Sunday of Easter, we'll hear about Thomas and Jesus. Again, we'll hear about Thomas and Jesus during that time. And so we get to hear this passage lots during our time together. And I thought it was strange as I was reflecting and thinking about preparing for World Mission Sunday when I saw that this was what was the gospel lesson for this day. My brain, as soon as I see World Mission, I immediately jump to Matthew 20, or to Matthew 28, to the end of Matthew with the Great Commission, thinking, well, surely that's what we're going to be looking at. And then I flip open my prayer book and I look down, I'm like, oh no, it's John 20. Well, that's different. You think I would have enough memory to realize that I've been here at Grace long enough to have gone through the entire lectionary cycle that I would have remembered that we use different gospel texts for each World Mission Sunday. Last year's was Jesus telling us to come to him because his burden is light. One of our gospel words, one of our words that we hear from the Lord after confession and absolution. And what I like about the fact that we have these other passages, that they're not all focused on the Great Commission, that it drives us to see how deeply and how intrinsically it is that it is about Jesus. It's easy on a World Mission Sunday to talk about all the great missionaries throughout history, to talk about current day missionaries, to talk about how we're supposed to be missionaries, and to put Jesus on the back burner without realizing it. Yes, it is true that we are called to go out into this world and to make Jesus known, but it's very easy for us to accidentally put Jesus behind everything that we do, that we get caught up in the do, do, do of the gospel and not the why, why, why. And a passage like John 20 brings us back to the why, brings us back to the why that we are missionaries, why we are called to go throughout the world. And so just simply beginning here, In chapter 20 at verse 19, we discover that there is peace through his wounds. That through the wounds of Jesus, peace is brought to us. The disciples are hiding. On the evening of that first day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, that Sunday, Peter and John have seen the resurrected Jesus. Mary Magdalene and some of the other women have seen him. The disciples that were traveling to Emmaus have seen Jesus risen from the dead. They know something amazing has happened but they've gone back into hiding. They're behind locked doors because they are fearful of the Jewish authorities who had just crucified Jesus, who through the power of Rome had put Jesus to death. 
And they could easily just come sweeping in and get a hold of them and put them to death, put them in prison, lock them up. And so they're hiding. But these events have driven them back together. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas and the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, the disciples all scattered. They all ran away and hid. And by the time Jesus' trial was over, even John and even Peter had fled. John remained ever watchful from a distance, going on to take Jesus' own mother into his own home to care for her. And yet, they hear that Jesus is raised from the dead. Some of them have even seen him. And so they are forced to come back together to hide in this house together, to hide in this upper room for fear of the Jewish authorities. And suddenly Jesus appears. He is just simply there in their presence, there in their midst. The doors are locked. There's no mention of any windows. It's just a simple room with locked doors. And there Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of them. The exact opposite of what happened to the disciples in, in, on the road to Emmaus. They got to where they were going and Jesus vanished from their midst. And now he reappears. He comes back and he just shows up in the midst of the disciples here in this room. And the first words that he says is, peace be with you. Some commentators will simply write this off. Well, that's just a general Jewish blessing. That's just a general Jewish greeting. It's like saying, hi, I hope that all is well with you. And that's true. Peace be with you is a regular old Jewish greeting. But here in the context of John's gospel right now, after hearing about Jesus saying, I am going to bring you peace through my death and resurrection, there will be peace. I give you my peace, my peace I leave with you. We hear constantly in the gospel of John there from 14 to 17, we hear about Jesus's peace being poured out upon the disciples. And so here, just a few days after that, he shows up in their midst and says, peace be with you, and then immediately shows them his hands and his side. He shows that to them to show that this is not an any ordinary greeting. But he shows to them what brings them peace. And they respond by being glad when they saw him. Luke gives us more detail. Initially, they were scared out of their minds when Jesus suddenly showed up there in their midst. But John just gets to the end of the, end of the line right there. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side and they rejoice. They are glad when they finally realize what has happened. And his words of peace are greater than just a greeting. It's a peace between himself and them, between the Father and them on account of his work. And that's why he shows his hands, why he shows his side, because what he says is grounded in the forgiveness of God that is found only through his resurrection, through his death and his resurrection. It's not grounded in our going out, his peace is not grounded in our making disciples. It's not grounded in big community benefits and actions. The peace that Jesus gives to his disciples is grounded in his very wounds. The peace that we receive flows out of the forgiveness that comes from the cross. And he doesn't say it to him just once. Throughout this passage, we hear it multiple times. Right after the disciples are overjoyed to see him after his first word of peace, he says it immediately again, peace be with you. He wants them to understand that they now have peace, that yes, they all abandoned him. They all failed in various ways. They have all sinned against God. But all of that is dealt with. They have been gathered back together to become the core 
of the work that God is now going to do through the Son for the rest of the world. The Son has brought peace to the world. He has brought peace through His own death and resurrection and continues to bear those marks in His body. I believe even to this day, to this hour, to this very moment, Jesus is bearing those scars upon His body. The wounds that have set us free are still upon His glorified body. That they don't just disappear. One commentator said, oh, this is just for this moment, and then after that, Jesus no longer bears the marks. And I'm thinking... Who are you? <laughs> Why would you say that? Because Jesus bears these marks for salvation. They are the mark of the work of, the, of God the Father through the Son. He carries these marks in order to know that peace is through Him, through His wounds, through His sacrifice, through His substituting Himself and being our representative in all things. He takes our sin to Himself and receives the just punishment that should be ours. And so he carries these marks in order that we would have peace through his wounds, through the cross. He bears these marks for his glory. Even in his glorified body and his perfection and his rising to new life, he bears these marks for our sake to show that peace comes from him alone. He shows that peace comes through these wounds. But not only does he give peace He gives his disciples his spirit. He sends them forth with his very spirit. There in verse 20, he says, 21, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Father sent Jesus into this world, and now he in turn sends others to go forth from him. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. In our Isaiah passage, we heard the Messiah speaking. Isaiah speaking for the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Spirit of the Lord our God is upon me. That spirit was given to Jesus at his baptism. That spirit was poured out upon him, came down in the form of a dove for all to see. For those who were there to see it descend and rest and alight upon Jesus. And now, that very spirit that he has through his death and resurrection, he now breathes out upon his disciples, upon those in that room with him. And thus, the work of the Messiah becomes our work. The work of the Messiah, making known the forgiveness that comes through him, the peace that is through his wounds, comes to his followers. It also reminds me of Genesis 2, when God formed man, formed Adam out of the dust. He breathed on him and gave him life. Here, Jesus breathes on his disciples as, the, as God did that day in the garden to bring physical life. Adam, but for us it brings a new kind of life into us. He breathes on his disciples to give them new life, not the old life that is passing away because of sin, but new life, new salvation, a new way of being, a new way of existing that brings them into divine, into a union with the divinity, into a union with God himself, for that spirit binds them up and dwells within them and dwells within us. And so Jesus gives them his spirit so that they can then 
continue his work so that they can then be the ones who work with him. He got the Spirit to do his work, and now he gives that Spirit so we can go forth and work with him. The apostles didn't get the Holy Spirit in order to replace Jesus so that they could do his work instead of him. We and the disciples, the apostles, received the Spirit so that Jesus could do his work through them. With the Spirit, Jesus goes with us into this world. He goes with his apostles throughout the earth, throughout the Roman Empire, even as far as India and China to carry the gospel in these early days. His Spirit goes with them and thus he goes with them. That is why they get the Spirit to empower them, to renew them, and to bind them to Jesus so that wherever they go, Jesus goes with them. And so they share in his work, and he works through them. They don't do a separate work. What the apostles go on to do is a part and parcel of the work of God himself through Jesus on the cross. They now take that accomplished work out. And as they go out, Jesus goes with them wherever they go. He's no longer bound to a simple, single location. Through the Spirit that he gives to them and down to us this day, he goes with us all because we are united and he bears our flesh in order that we would bear him wherever we go. So we become united to him and him to us, and he sends us forth. And what do they go out to do? They go out to proclaim the Lord's favor, to proclaim the binding up of the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn, to proclaim the day of vengeance that will come in, when God comes in judgment. That is what the Messiah does in his ministry. And with the giving of the Spirit this evening to the disciples, he binds them up into his own mission. That now they can say the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Not because they're separate from Jesus, but because they have been bound up with him. It becomes a situation of what Jesus has done, we do too. We are called to work. As he proclaims and makes himself known, he is doing it through us. As he becomes the great and perfect and is the perfect Messiah, we become little messiahs in a way, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the forgiveness, proclaiming the peace through his wounds that comes. We go out in order to know him because he has anointed us. He has anointed us with the Spirit, not in some quasi-charismatic or Pentecostal-like way, that we have some special word of knowledge that no one can debate or argue against, but just in the simple sense of having the Spirit to be upon us, to be within us, to renew our hearts and our minds and to guide us ever nearer and to send us back out, to give us words of forgiveness for those around us, to give us that ability to speak that God has forgiven us. And thus he has forgiven you. Receive the work that he has done on your behalf. And with that spirit that Jesus gives to his apostles, he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here for some, for many, I think, is the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the church. That the apostles are given that authority to pronounce forgiveness. They're also given an authority to withhold that forgiveness when it is rejected, when it is refused, when it is thrown away. 
that they can speak that word of forgiveness because Jesus has accomplished forgiveness through his wounds. But it also, through the apostles, works through us too. That we also, whether we're ordained or not, can say, you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. We can proclaim that very forgiveness of Jesus to all that we encounter. And as they hear that word, they can be changed by that word. The Spirit can work in them and cause them to receive that forgiveness and they will be forgiven. The objectivity of the gospel is that Jesus has died for the sins of the world. However, continually in the gospel, in the Bible, in Scripture, we're continually called to trust in that work of Jesus. And so forgiveness can exist for all, but not all ever receive that forgiveness. And that is the mystery of salvation, that some will receive it and some won't, and we don't understand that. But nonetheless, we preach forgiveness. We preach that Jesus has accomplished the forgiveness of sins for the whole world, and so we call all to come and trust what He has done, all to believe, to see their sinfulness, and to know that it is removed from the Father. It is removed by the Father. It is taken away. And for those who reject it, those who refuse to believe, those who want to go their own way, that forgiveness becomes withheld. And we, in, some, in that sense, withhold it from them by continually reminding them that, yes, forgiveness is real and it exists, but if you reject it, you will lose out on it. It will not be for you if you reject it and refuse it. But then we turn around and say, and you are forgiven, even of that. Come and draw near to the Lord. Know that He has dealt with your sin. And thus forgiveness leads to faith. Forgiveness leads to that receiving of peace. And thus forgiveness is proclaimed and received by us in both senses. We proclaim it and we receive it. We proclaim it for others to receive and we proclaim it for us to receive. That's what St. Paul tells us about there in Romans 10. That if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That Jesus is Lord. Paul isn't saying that if you just simply believe Jesus is a good ruler, that he's this great ruler, that he's this good generic leader, then you will be saved. No, he's saying if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that you confess with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word Kyrios in the Greek is used throughout the Old Testament for Yahweh. When the name Yahweh, when, the, when those four Hebrew letters appear in the Hebrew text, when they translate it into Greek, they replaced it with Kyrios. They put it in place for there. And so we know that Kyrios means more than just ordinary leader when you're talking about Scripture. That it becomes a stand-in for Yahweh's name. And so when Peter, Paul says here that you confess that Jesus is Lord, you're confessing that Jesus is Yahweh, that He is the God of the Old Testament, that He is the Creator God who made all things. And so we are called to confess with our mouths that Jesus is God. And believe in your heart, have faith, trust that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. You will be lifted out of the sins that mire you down, that clog you down, that drag you down. Those sins will be lifted off of you and will be worked out of you. Paul continues, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
These things go together, that as you come to trust in the Lord, you will come to speak of that trust. You will come to speak not so much about your personal trust, but what the Lord has done. I so often think about my secular jobs I've had, my non-ministry jobs, and how often I would get caught up in talking about my own personal faith, how great it is to believe in Jesus and what this and that, and how great my faith is and how good it is to trust in the Lord, and not nearly enough time talking about just Jesus, talking about what Jesus has done. We think of giving our testimonies, and we think of talking about all the things that we have received in one sense, but then it always turns back to and then I have faith, and now I've done all these great things because of my faith. So many of our testimonies slip into that, look what I've done for Jesus. Yes, we start off with some of, look what Jesus has done for me, but we quickly turn it to become, what have I done for Jesus? So therefore, you should get saved so you can do a bunch of stuff for Jesus. Instead of it being about Jesus died for you. There's my testimony. Jesus died for your sins. Believe in his name. That is my testimony now, that Jesus died for your sins. Believe in him. And we proclaim that so that we can receive it. We proclaim it so that we can know it. And Jesus will change us. He will work in us because he gives us his spirit to fill us and to call us and to send us forth in his name to accomplish his work, to make him known, to work through us what he needs and desires us to do. Because Jesus is God. And we see that very thing with Thomas today. He didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He said, I have to see it with my eyes. I have to put my hands in the scars myself. And Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. And he invites him to touch him, to fill him. But Thomas doesn't. It doesn't say that he does. He just simply finally dawns on him fully and completely and says, my Lord and my God, you are the God of the universe, Jesus. You are the one true creator God. And he receives that proclaimed forgiveness and that proclaimed peace through Jesus' wounds so that he can then be filled with the Spirit and sent forth as one of the apostles to go make Jesus known. And that is the core of our salvation, that Jesus has died for our sins, that he brings peace through his wounds and fills us with his Spirit to send us out to proclaim forgiveness. For it is the year of the Lord's favor. It is a year that extends from our perspective right now, indefinitely. There is no end to this year in the sense of us knowing when it ends. It will end when Jesus returns, when he comes to finalize salvation, to consummate the salvation he has purchased through his death and resurrection for this world. And he will come to do that. But that means he comes in judgment against all of those who have rejected, who have resisted, who have thrown away that salvation, that forgiveness, and that peace. But now is the day of the Lord's favor. Now is the year of the Lord that we can proclaim forgiveness, that we can proclaim redemption, that we can proclaim peace through his wounds. And so as we think about the work of the church and the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and to call all peoples to faith in Jesus. That without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Without his wounds, there is no peace. Without his cross, there is no redemption. And so Jesus is the center, and that is our mission, to make him known, to make known his work. As I told the kids the other day, 
the passion narratives take up most of the gospel text. In each of the gospels, it's mostly the passion narrative, the last week of Jesus' life. Chapters 13 through 21 is all about Jesus' death in the gospel of John. The first 12 chapters is about the other three years of his ministry. And then one week is spent in nine chapters of 21. The other gospels are the same way that we have to see that Jesus' death and resurrection is for us and is the center of what we do as the church, is the mission that we are called to to make known. Everything flows out of that. And on this World Mission Sunday, we ask the Lord to fill us with his spirit so that we can go forth and proclaim that forgiveness now and evermore, to proclaim the forgiveness that is for the world in Jesus and to call people to repentance in light of that forgiveness, to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and the work that he will do in them to change them because he has accomplished forgiveness and brought peace through his wounds. So may we evermore receive that peace and that forgiveness so that we can then proclaim it for others to receive. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.